0: Um, Thank you guys for joining us today for the critical care curriculum. So today we're very fortunate to have Dr. Grazioli here with us. Um, So Allison is a trained nephrologist as well as a trained critical care doctor who came out of our own fellowship program. Um, She's a joint appointment at the University of Maryland as well as the NIH doing some nephrology work and also working in our cardiothoracic ICU. She was kind enough to agree to come talk to us today about continuous renal replacement therapy in the ICU. So without further ado, Allison, go ahead and take it away. Thanks, Andy, for the introduction. Um, So uh, uh, the the objectives of my talk are um, just going to give a very practical talk about uh, fundamentals of CRRT. I'll give an overview of modalities and use in certain um, ICU patient-specific scenarios. I'll kind of go over each component of uh, writing a CRRT uh, prescription. I'll overview the CRRT components. Um, I'll review circuit anticoagulation and our options, and I will give you some troubleshooting approaches. So most of you know um, all of the available forms of renal replacement therapy in the ICU. Um, Of course, we can do intermittent hemodialysis, which we tend to do on our more hemodynamically stable patients uh, in the ICU. Uh, Peritoneal dialysis is also a mode that you'll see. Um, It used to be uh, most recently uh, just patients that had already been started on peritoneal dialysis, but with uh, the COVID pandemic um, uh, kind of back into clinical relevance came the notion that we can do acute peritoneal dialysis Um, which some centers were looking into and started to do when they were rationing uh, machines and supplies for uh, other forms of renal replacement therapy. They used to do that all the time in in the past, and it it had um, kind of gone away until um, we kind of got pushed to be more creative um, with the pandemic. There's also uh, prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy. I'm not going to really talk about this, but um, what this is is it's kind of uh, an intermediate between uh, intermittent Intermittent hemodialysis and the continuous modalities. The most common form is SLED, which is slow, low efficiency daily dialysis. Uh, with this, you typically use a, a regular uh, intermittent, hemo, uh, intermittent hemodialysis machine, and a dialysis nurse will run the therapy. And it's just a dialysis session, but at a lower blood flow and a lower dialysate uh, rate. Um, and it lasts for longer than your typical dialysis session. Also, now with the COVID pandemic, um, uh, people have been kind of uh, using CRRT machines to do these kind of prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy sessions. Um, and this is specifically when they needed to ration them, they would uh, use your typical uh, CRRT treatment, uh, but with a, they would maybe double your, uh, your uh, replacement rate um, and shorten your time so that they could use these machines to treat more than one patient in a day, uh, given that uh, they were limited. Um, and then what I'll really focus on today is uh, continuous renal replacement therapy, or CRRT. Um, and this is an umbrella to- umbrella term for different modalities that you can um, uh, use for your patient. And those are uh, continuous veno-venous hemofiltration (CVVH), continuous veno-venous hemodialysis uh, (CVVHD), a kind of a combination of the two, uh, continuous veno-venous hemodiafiltration (CVVHDF). And a slow continuous ultrafiltration or scuff. Um, and I'll kind of overview these quickly. Um, so just very briefly, the two ways we can achieve clearance using CRRT are with diffusion and convection. And there is a third way. It's a, it's a, it's a lesser c- a contributor, but uh, both modalities, um, you will still get some clearance via uh, adsorption. And all that that means is that... Um, uh, proteins uh, from the blood compartment will kind of stick to the dialysis membrane um, and will uh, then leave the blood just because they get stuck on the membrane. But again, the two main uh, components are diffusion. And very briefly, most most people know this. Uh, So you take your blood and all of the solutes Um, will be on one side of the membrane, um, so shown here. Uh, The membrane has pores, um, and on the other side of the membrane, if you're clearing by diffusion, you'll have your dialysis solution. Um, Your dialysis solution will have no or or low concentration of stuff that you want to clear out of the blood, and it'll have a higher concentration of stuff that you want to maintain in the blood or give back to the blood, for example, like uh, bicarbonate. And just by pure diffusion down concentration gradients, the bad stuff you want to remove out of the blood will move over uh, into the other compartment on the other side of the membrane, and the good stuff like the bicarbonate will go into the blood, um, and that's how you kind of maintain um, the solute concentration that you want and clear the bad things out of the blood. Um, and this is what exclusively what happens in intermittent hemodialysis, and this is the mechanism of clearance with CVVHD, so continuous veno-venous venous hemodialysis. The other way that we can uh, clear the blood using CRRT um, is with hemofiltration. So continuous venovenous hemofiltration will use convection. Um, And how that removes uh, solutes uh, from the blood that uh, you want to clear is through a convective force. So it's the exact same system. The blood flows through the the membrane um, and is in the same compartment and is exposed to the exact same filter membrane. Except instead of diffusion moving these solutes across, uh, this other side of the membrane is empty. And what will happen is there will be a force that gets ap- applied to the blood compartment, which will create a, p- a positive force that will push uh, plasma water and through solvent drag solutes out into the other space. Um, and then they'll be in the other space, and this will kind of get washed away out of, uh, out of the filter. Um, You know, the volume of water, uh, the plasma water that you lose, you'll replace um, with a replacement fluid, which will also have the components that you want to maintain in the blood, like bicarbonate and a normal level of glucose and and, and potassium. So just to kind of look at the filter, um, so most of you have seen these filters, Uh, blood goes in uh, one end and then out the other. And if you were to cut this uh, filter in cross-section and look at it, what it is is hundreds of thousands of these little tiny, they're actually microscopically hollow. If you look at them, they actually don't look hollow, but they are. And the blood flows through these little tubes, these hundreds of thousands of tubes. And so that's kind of shown here with these little red dots. And so these tubes are your filter membrane. They're, the, they're these membranes that have pores, um, which allow for movement of plasma water and solute. Now, if you're doing a dialysis modality, again, the dialysis will kind of come in here and will surround uh, these little little filters. Um, and so you'll have dialysate uh, fluid here in this white space, um, and that's where the diffusion will occur. And if you're doing convection, this white space will be empty. There will be no solution there. Um, and as the force pushes the plasma water and solute out, you will fill this white space uh, with the uh, plasma water and solute by solvent drag that you're going to remove, and it will come out um, here at this port. You'll notice that the dialysis goes in at the opposite end of the blood flow, and that is on purpose because you want the dialysate to kind of flow, flow in the opposite direction of your blood, so you maximize your diffusion gradient because it's a counter-current uh, uh, passage. Another really very brief way to kind of illustrate this and the differences. So with CVVH, again, the blood flows in one direction. This is your filter, and it goes, it goes um, out. Um, and again, in cross-section, uh, these the blood is in these little hollow tubes, and there's nothing in this white space. And so as you remove, um, as you your convective force goes and you remove uh, fluid, the effluent will drain out here. And your effluent volume, that thing that you see in the effluent bag at the base of the machine, um, over time equals your replacement volume over time plus your net ultrafiltration volume over time. This is the volume, that you, that you, uh, the volume of hemofiltration that you do not replace and you dedicate uh, a value to this uh, to achieve the fluid goal that you want. And also that pre-blood pump volume, um, the machine is very smart and it takes off that volume that um, you are putting into the blood through the pre-blood pump. You don't even have to tell the machine to do it, it's done automatically. And how you replace um, uh, the effluent volume that you dedicate for um, uh, the amount of of clearance that you want is you take your bag of what we now call as uh, replacement fluid. It's the same fluid uh, that we would call the dialysate if we use dialysis. And we put it directly into the blood. Um, And I'll go over um, how you should break it up and what the benefits are of, of putting it in different spots. Um, But your two options are you put your replacement fluid directly into the blood either before it goes through the filter or after it goes through the filter. And usually you break it up and put it in a a combination of the two. And so to illustrate CVVHD, um, again, your dialysis, uh, use dialysis fluid. You do not put... That the fluid directly into the blood. It is the same bag of prismasate. Um, now we call it dialysate if you're going to do a, a diffusive mode like CVVHD. And it goes into uh, the filter and the dialysate will then surround uh, the the filter membranes which are carrying the blood um, and create the diffusion gradient. It will run countercurrent. Um, and then the dialysate will uh, be uh, removed from that same uh, effluent port and then drain out off into your effluent bag. And here, your effluent volume is equal to your dialysate volume plus your net ultrafiltration volume plus your pre blood pump volume. So, CVVHDF is a combination of these two modalities. It will give you some diffusive clearance and some convective clearance. Um, most people will uh, give the replacement fluid in cvv pre-filter, um, and they will also uh, have a, a dialysate uh, running as well at the same time simultaneously. So you're kind of doing two modes at once, and I'll kind of uh, give you uh, some scenarios where uh, you might want to choose this. Um, and again, both the All of the effluent uh, will drain out the same port, and your effluent volume in this modality is your replacement volume, your dialysate volume, your net ultrafiltration, and your your pre-blood pump volume. So SCUF um, is just hemofiltration um, that you just don't replace. So you don't really get much clearance, though, of course, you are removing some solute by the solvent drag. Uh, But it's that same convective force, uh, and it's just uh, at a rate that uh, will give you the volume of uh, fluid uh, negativity that you kind of want to give for your patient uh, over, over the course of the hour and then, you know, add it up for 24 hours. So the exact same filter, blood goes through the exact same way. You apply the convective force. Uh, at a strength that will give you the, the volume per, uh, for, per time. For removal, it'll drain out the effluent uh, same port, and, um, but you just don't replace the volume. So you aren't going to give anything good back to the blood and you're not going to get a significant amount of clearance. So how do these clearance modalities compare? Um, when you're using diffusion or convection, what is better? Uh, So if you look here on the left, this is clearance in minutes per mil, and on the bottom is uh, molecular weight, so in daltons, so 1 times 10 to the 1, 1 times 10 to the 2. So if you look, when the molecule is really small, diffusion and convection both clear incredibly well. So there's really not too much difference between the two. And small molecules that, you know, we think about all the time in dialysis are, are your electrolytes, urea, creatinine. They're both cleared incredibly well. So there's really no difference when you're talking about small molecule clearance. Where convection kind of has an advantage is when we talk about middle molecule clearance. So anything that's like 10,000 Daltons to, I uh, know, 30,000 Daltons, those would be considered more middle molecules, maybe 20,000 Daltons or more middle molecules. Diffusion does not give you much middle molecule clearance. So if you're doing CVHD, you don't get a lot of that clearance. Um, you will get, you know, there will still be some adsorption. So some of those middle molecules can get stuck up on the filter, but you're not going to be clearing them by uh, diffusive modality. Though convection will do that, and so middle molecules that we kind of think about when we're uh, doing uh, CRRT in certain specific clinical situations are myoglobin and rhabdo, so you will get some clearance with that during uh, convective therapy, and also cytokines, um, they're, they're pretty much middle molecules, so you can get some cytokine clearance during uh, convective modalities. Neither of these will uh, clear large molecules like albumin, and that is good, and that's also because the filters are engineered to not allow larger molecules to pass through because it would be pretty devastating um, if you were to lose molecules as large as albumin and bigger. So how much of a given molecule is cleared by hemofiltration? Um, it's very dependent on the filter membrane characteristics. Um and um, we can calculate exactly how much clearance we can expect uh, by calculating a seething coefficient, which you might hear. Um, I'll just briefly kind of uh, go over this. Uh, so it's the ratio of a particular solute uh, of the ratio of a particular solute concentration in the effluent, so the stuff that is coming off that you're going to throw away, um, to the pre-filter plasma water concentration. So if something is perfectly cleared, it's going to make it through that filter without a problem, and you're effluent concentration will equal the concentration that was in the blood before it ran through the filter. So the best, smallest molecules, the sieving coefficients are 1. And molecules that we think of all the time, you know, when we're talking about renal replacement therapy with sieving coefficients that are really high, like 1, are urea, creatinine, some electrolytes, and lactate. So lactate has a sieving coefficient of 1, which is important because we think about that a lot um, in patients requiring renal replacement therapy in the ICU. Also note that vitamins, so vitamin B12 has a sieving coefficient of one. So there are things that are being removed that we don't typically think about, especially water-soluble vitamins that aren't in our replacement fluid or our dialysate. So we have to think about that, too, as something that is being lost. Make sure we're giving our patients uh, water-soluble vitamins. But just know that, you know, we can remove things, but sometimes there are things that we're not thinking about that we might be taking away. Um, Of course, albumin has a very low sieving coefficient, Um, almost none of it should be cleared. And myoglobin, especially with the filters that we have at uh, the University of Maryland, the M150s um, and the HF uh, series, uh, has actually a fairly decent sieving coefficient, so about 0.58, so you can get some myoglobin clearance. So which mode is better? So is it better to clear by dialysis in diffusive modality or hemofiltration a convective modality? Well, it doesn't really matter in terms of what we were able to bear out in the literature. There's no definitive clinical outcome data that shows an advantage of either of these modalities. Um, again, removal of low low uh, molecular weight solutes is very similar. Um, and, of course, we know convection has better middle molecule clearance, so cytokines, acasinoids, endotoxins, and other inflammatory mediators These would normally be cleared by the kidney. Um, so, you know, it's not – Uh, it is important to think about what we're doing in terms of clearance with renal replacement therapy. Um, And they're definitely cleared better with convection. However, um, I'll kind of detail this a little bit more. We really don't have strong evidence to say that that changes any outcomes. Um, And another point is that there's more absorption of uh, cytokines on filter membranes with convection, which kind of makes sense, right? You're kind of pulling plasma water through the the convection, you're creating a strong force that's pushing the, the, the plasma uh, against the membrane, which allows it to come in contact uh, in, a, in a more stronger way and stick to it than just for allowing diffu- it just with diffusion. So now to kind of talk about some specific scenarios and what we know what the literature says. Um, you know, notably not talking about when we should start renal replacement therapy um, in the ICU. It is a lecture in itself, and the literature um, leaves some of the, the subtleties of that kind of murky. Um, but uh, when we should start CVVH uh, in sepsis is, is a very hot topic of, of the study. Um, and the question is always, can you improve sepsis outcomes by starting CVVH particularly early? Um And so there have been many randomized controlled trials and and tons of observational studies. Um, And in most of these, uh, you know, at least in the larger RCTs, continuous uh, hemofiltration at the standard dose, so anywhere from 20 to 25 to 30 uh, cc's per kg per hour, um, applied early at the first signs of organ failure in septic patients, even before AKI. Um, had developed did not really alter cytokine levels and did not affect organ function. Of course, if you go through the literature, you will definitely find some papers where it did affect cytokine levels and even some that trended to show some positive outcomes. But really we don't have any robust proof of this. Um, So, you know, if we can't use our standard CRRT prescription to change, uh, to change uh, sepsis outcomes, what if we just do more CRRT, more hemofiltration, double our prescription, double our clearance, so that's been looked at too. Um, there was a fairly large uh, randomized control uh, trial, the Ivoire study that came out a couple years ago on intensive care medicine, which uh, kind of used a, a double double the standard um, dialysis dose. They used a high volume hemofiltration of 70, 70 cc's per kg per hour versus a little bit more than we would normally say with standard 35 cc's per kg per hour. And they didn't see any difference uh, in mortality or he- hemodynamics or organ function. Um, so this was, was largely negative. Um, and then another question you could ask, well, what if we just increase the larger molecules that we can clear? And we could do that if we put larger pores in our filter that will allow clearance for molecules even bigger than what we, we do at standard. And I'll tell you, and I'll detail this a little bit more, that um, we allow clearance of molecules up to 30, 40 kilodaltons. Um, but there are some membranes out there that will allow uh, filtration of molecules up to 60 kilodaltons, and these in theory will allow higher flux of those middle molecules as well because they can fit through more pores that are, that are a little bit larger. There was a, a fairly recent um, RCT that used a high-flux membrane, and this actually had to be stopped early because it was showing no benefit in sepsis. So we really haven't been able to prove that um, using CVVH, even um, with more intensive regimens, uh, has been able to improve things in sepsis um, however we're not going to stop <laughs> we're going to continue to try and, and the literature is definitely looking at this actively all the time to see if we can use CVVH um, and, and some modification of the modality to uh, to improve sepsis outcomes and, and now I think uh, it's important to, to know there's a range of filters that are always being kind of looked at um, and a lot of adsorbent cartridges so again cytokines uh, are, are, are charged and get absorbed, uh, I wouldn't say pretty well, but they do have a good amount of uh, absorption. Um, and so people are trying to kind of manipulate that, the absorptive clearance to see if they can improve sepsis outcomes. So several, I just gave you a couple examples here of several um, membranes um, or absorptive cartridges that are being looked at. Uh, so septics is another high membrane car- cartridge that is being looked at. Um, they take some filters and they'll coat them with polymixin B, which is a cationic polypeptide, which can neutralize endotoxin. So um, you can kind of, uh, you know, diminish your endotoxin uh, concentration with these filters. Um, There's an Oryx membrane, which is a a positively charged membrane, which is supposed to better uh, adsorb uh, cytokines. Um, And then a common one is the cytosorb. Uh, which isn't a, a really a filter. It's this – I just kind of showed it here because you'll see it. It's being studied a lot, and both the Oryxis and the cytosorb were actually FDA, uh, given FDA authorization for emergency treatment in COVID-19 uh, because of their ability to clear or propensity to clear IL-6 and other cytokines that might be mediating that pathophysiology. And what the cytosorb is is it's these, these uh, cationic beads uh, that the blood flows through. This won't clear this won't clear solute, but it's it's put in line with a regular filter. Um, if you need clearance as well, and the blood will flow through, and you'll get some extra cytokine clearance. This is also looked at not just in sepsis, but other inflammatory scenarios like cardiopulmonary bypass, um, and definitely it was looked at uh, in COVID-19. So um, actually, pretty standard to use uh, adsorbents like the cytosorb, um in other countries such as Japan, where they tend to start. A CRT early in sepsis and also will use an adsorptive cartridge kind of in lot. Again, um, there's always some positive studies, some many negative studies, but there's really no overt robust evidence for using um, increased adsorption in sepsis, um, but th- there's going to be definitely more to come about this. So now what about rhabdo? Um, so we know rhabdo is nephrotoxic. Um, and, we, you know, in theory, if we could remove all the myoglobin from the blood, we might be able to prevent um, the severity of renal injury. Um, and, and like I mentioned before, convective clearance can actually clear a portion of myoglobin from the blood. Uh, you know, the filters that we use for our CRT machines have sieving coefficient of myoglobin, which isn't too bad. It's 0.58. One is, is typically the best. So um, you can. Um, but something to know about steven coefficients is they kind of change over time as things kind of, uh, as fibrin kind of builds up on the membrane and the membrane uh, properties change as they come in contact with the blood as you do, you know, continuous therapy. Um, and the steven coefficient for myoglobin actually drops pretty quickly. So, you know, after 24 hours, you're clearing almost no myoglobin, whereas before the clearance wasn't so bad. You know, and there's no evidence for this, but I think this is the reason why um, some people, you know, especially in the university, will change the filter every few hours. It's to keep the the sieving coefficient as high as it possibly can because it's going to drop as the blood is exposed to the membrane. And so, how much myoglobin can we remove with CVVH? You know, it's not exactly known. I mean, and the big unknown is how much myoglobin is being produced, and that's very patient specific. Um, uh, and it, 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 again, varies depending on uh, Stephen coefficient, which isn't static. It changes over time. Uh, Belomo, who's one of the renal uh, ICU uh, gurus, um, looked at this uh, in, in the 90s, uh, and he kind of did some, some nice mathematics. Um, he uh, used a continuous uh, hemodiafiltration, so CVVHDF, with a standard filter. And his, and his calculations was shown that, you know, with it was fairly standard Uh, Doses was able to remove about 24, sorry, 25% of the myoglobin over 24 hours. I think some more mathematically, maybe, I wouldn't say accurate, but mathematically precise uh, data comes from the animal models where they gave, they could drip in the myoglobin so they know how much myoglobin was present in the blood before they ran their clearance studies. Um, and they found in these animal studies that convective clearance, you can get about 10 to 15% of myoglobin a removal. So not an insignificant amount, but not, you know, like 100% either. And this is just a picture of um, effluent from super high flux uh, hemofiltration. So myoglobin's a pigment, and you can see on ICU day one, it's very red, lots of myoglobin. And as the days progressed, um, it went to our typical yellow color. Uh, which is what typical effluent looks like. So the myoglobin was cleared. Of course, that says nothing about how much myoglobin generation had diminished over the few days after you know, the inciting event for the rhabdo was being treated. And so we can clear myoglobin. So what does this mean for clinical outcomes? Um, you know, a lot of this literature in CRT is, is really poor. I would say the The CRT literature surrounding rhabdo is is really poor. All the studies are really small and low quality. Um, However, when they've kind of looked at them and done meta-analyses, they do show that, of course, convective clearance can decrease serum myoglobin. Um, And even some studies had a trend towards a a shortened duration of oliguria and lens this stay, but really there was no overt benefit, no mortality benefit or definitive improvement in renal outcomes. So it's typically standard we say is we don't start CRT until you develop a you know a traditional dialysis need, um, but if you're going to do a CRT, you know I, I don't see the downside of using a convective modality to clear whatever myoglobin you can. Um, and just you know a point because I know some people really still try to do high effluent uh, uh, or high hemofiltration volumes to try to clear as much myoglobin they can. They'll use cir- two circuits. Um, You just have to keep in mind any unintended consequences, which we don't routinely study, which you probably do, is with increased solute clearance, you're also losing um, amino acids, vitamins, medications you're giving your patient, catecholamines, antibiotics. There's a lot of other compounds that we don't think about that we're removing. So it may not be worth it to try to increase the myoglobin removal to remove all these things that we just really don't know the downstream effects. So moving on. So what about lactic acidosis? So can CRT help? with lactic acidosis. So I told you guys already, lactate is cleared very well across the filter. It's a small molecule, its seeding coefficient is one. Um, And the answer of what we're really doing with CRRT uh, in terms of lactate clearance um, was shown really nicely um, in the study in 1997 by uh, Lavreau. Um, He did this cool thing. So he took 10 stable ICU patients that had very stable serum lactate uh, levels. Um, so there was, no, there was no, you know, increase in lactate from the patient's uh, endogenous generation. And he actually infused lactate at a known continuous rate so he could know how much he was giving the patient. This way he could calculate the portion uh, that was being cleared endogenously and the portion that was being cleared in the effluent because he could measure that. Um, and what he found was that it was – there was no comparison. Well, yes, lactate will freely – across the filter, um, and you can clear some uh, lactate, and this is the lactate clearance in mLs per minute. This is very low number, 24.2. It was absolutely no, nothing compared to the amount of lactate that gets endogenously cleared. And we know the liver, but also muscles will do it too. Kidneys will clear lactate. Um, so really no comparison with what we could clear by the filter. Now, the study was kind of criticized because it used some lower uh, blood flow and dialysate uh, or or, or Uh, hemofiltration rates, Um, but other people have looked at it with higher hemofiltration rates and also found that the amount of lactate clearance was really just nothing in comparison to what's endogenously cleared. And what that means for us is that, you know, when you place a patient on CRT, you're not masking lactate overproduction and and the the blood concentration still remains a a reliable uh, marker of metabolic stress. Um, So we can't really say that, oh, the patient's on CRT, so that's why the lactate's trending down. It really won't change your lactate trend appreciably. So what I think people want to do, and I do it too, is what they want to do when they start CRTs. They want to fix the acidosis. I mean, we can't clear the acid, the H+. that's not accessible to the dialysis membrane, and that's buffered right away. That's what our whole bicarbonate buffer system is. And we have so many other redundant buffering systems. You know, our plasma, uh, many plasma proteins will buffer acid. Our bones will buffer acid. We're not able to clear that acid directly with CRRT, but what we are able to do is kind of replenish the buffering you know, system, the bicarbonate system. So CRRT can give you a good amount of bicarbonate. Um, And you know we all know this is a controversial topic in uh, critical care, um, and there's studies that suggest there may be more harm uh, with giving you know large volumes of bicarbonate in the setting of lactic acidosis because you can increase the arterial and tissue capillary uh, PCO2 generation and you can worsen intracellular acidosis. Um, But you know CRRT can give you a good amount of uh, bicarbonate delivery. You're, You're removing. Uh, bicarbonate poor effluent uh, or plasma plasma uh, water and you're giving bicarbonate rich replacement fluid and one other thing which is just kind of not really necessarily related to this but is a very cool emerging um, topic in the literature so lactate is just a is a bicarbonate equivalent right it'll get metabolized back to bicarbonate but it's not just an inert you know um, metabolite uh, it's really bearing out in the literature that lactate is actually a signaling molecule, as are all of the, the molecules, uh, the, the um, metabolite intermediates of glycolysis, but it's actually involved in a regulation of adaptive and innate immunity. So lactate generation isn't just, it's not lactate it isn't just this inert uh, molecule that's kind of, you know, waiting to be converted back to bicarbonate. Um, it actually does have some signaling capabilities. So I just, just think that that's a cool piece of the literature when you read uh, to know about. So which should we choose? What are the benefits and disadvantages of using CRRT versus intermittent hemodialysis in the ICU? We can do both in the ICU. We do do both in the ICU. Um, So the benefits of CRRT are better hemodynamic uh, stability. Um, You're capable of greater clearance over time. So in the short term, uh, intermittent hemodialysis clearance far outpaces CRRT. But because CRRT runs 24 hours a day and keeps going, over time, it's like, it's like the tortoise that wins the race, so it's greater with CRRT. Um, CRRT, again, manages volumes, uh, volume for high obligate intakes, and that's just because you're able to ultrafiltrate every single minute of the day, unlike your typical dialysis prescription where you only do it about three or four hours a day. And Another benefit of CRRT is there are less effects on intracranial pressure, and I'll explain that a little bit in the next slide. Disadvantages of CRRT are, you know, if your patient's coming in with acute intoxication or severe hyperkalemia, you are really not going to be able to achieve the rapid clearance that you would with IHD. So standard of care is to try IHD for those scenarios as well if you can. CRT is more expensive, requires more nursing support. Again, with the greater clearance over time comes greater clearance of antibiotics, um, greater clearance of other things that, you know, we don't replace readily in the replacement fluid like, like uh, phosphate um, and vitamins. Uh, frequent clotting just because your machine is exposed to blood 24 hours a day and also because uh, a portion of the blood is outside of the bladder, you can get hypothermia as well. So to talk a little bit about um, intracranial pressure. Um, So IHD can be dangerous um, in acute brain injury. And the reason for that is but with fast clearance, you can get increased intracranial pressure. And this is just a compilation of case report reports documenting elevated increased pressure. Um, and they even showed that some people progressed brain herniation and death uh, following uh, intermittent hemodialysis treatments in patients with, you know, a, an acute brain injury. And the reason for this is, is um, it, fast clearance can cause cerebral edema. And why is this the case? Well, um, urea is classically thought of um, as um, a, a solute that really doesn't affect uh, the movement of water, and that's because it can move itself across uh, plasma membranes and it won't affect water's movement because it'll dissipate its own uh, concentration gradient because it'll just move down um, in, in its own concentration gradient direction. However, if you clear urea um, really quickly, really quickly, it can transiently become an effective solute uh, because it takes time for the urea to to move freely, um, you know, down its membrane transporters and then re-equilibrate to equal concentrations on both sides. So when you have a robust uh, clearance modality like intermittent hemodialysis, the only place you can clear urea from, oh, sorry, is in the blood because that's what we have access to to clear. So if you lower the urea concentration in the blood very quickly, before the urea can re equilibrate, you'll have this water flow down um, out of the blood compartment into the cellular compartment. Um, and what will happen will be that cells will swell. Now, this is not unique to the brain, but what is unique to the brain is that the brain is in a confined space. And so it does not tolerate cell swelling very quickly. And especially in injured brain, where there already is increased intracranial pressure, this can be really, really dangerous. Um, this whole this whole phenomenon is why we start uh, patients who have really high levels of urea who are new starts to dialysis. We'll do them in consecutive days, if you ever notice. We'll do dialysis three days in a row. It's because our first treatment is intentionally very inefficient because we don't want to clear uh, urea at high concentrations in the blood too quickly because we don't want to cause cerebral edema. It's called dialysis disequilibrium syndrome. Um, so... What is the evidence between uh, uh, you picking intermittent hemodialysis or CRRT um, in the, the ICU? You know, some, some units, especially some in Europe, will, I wouldn't say exclusively, but often favor intermittent hemodialysis over CRRT. Should we, does, does it really matter if we pick one or the other, if we can, you know, safely uh, give uh, the therapies to our patients? We know that both uh, achieve satisfactory metabolic control. There have been tons of observational studies, uh, randomized control trials, meta-analyses um, that show that neither modality is really superiorly uh, convincing uh, in terms of uh, changing mortality. So in that regard, it really doesn't matter. Um, the most inclusive meta-analyses in, in Cochrane reviews uh, found similar ICU hospital mortality, ICU mortality, length of stay, renal recovery in critically ill patients with with both modalities. Um, however, the caveat to this literature is a lot of people will, ex- a lot of these trials, it's, I wouldn't say all of them, but most of them excluded the really, really sick ICU patients on three pressors, where people would be very nervous to um, give intermittent hemodialysis versus CRRT. Now, let's say we give, we, we have a patient and we're not going to remove any fluid. And I'll kind of show you that the blood flow is really not all that different. Um, in intermittent dialysis versus CRRT. So why is one so much hemodynamically less stable? Well, it has to do with the fast clearance, at least in part, because when you're clearing things out of the blood compartment, you're, you're making it uh, transiently kind of hypotonic or, or hypoosmolar to what it was. And even though those solutes may be able to diffuse and, re, you know, reequilibrate across the membranes, transiently um, you, you have a, a hypoosmolar uh, blood compartment. And so what will happen is then the water will move out of the blood compartment into the cells before the reequilibration occurs. So you can kind of intravascularly get depleted with high clearance. Um, so that's one of the theories as to why, you know, faster clearance modalities like intermittent hemodialysis do cause more hypertension than, than CRT, even if you're not removing any fluid. So now let's get to writing a prescription. This is very fellow user friendly for people who are going to be writing dialysis prescriptions. So the first thing we have to pick. So each one of these components is uh, what you have to pick on your typical dialysis order. So the first thing you have to do is pick your access. Um, now in in our ICU at the University of Maryland, if you're using CRRT, you can only use it through either a catheter um, or an, directly through an ECMO circuit. We don't cannulate fistulas. For CRRT, number one, um, it's not good to have a fistula have needles in it for 24 hours, seven days a week. It hurts the access. And you really have to keep an eye on uh, cannulated fistulas um, because it can be dangerous if you get dislodgement. So we exclusively use catheters for CRRT or directly put it into the ECMO circuit. So, what catheter should you choose? So, you want to choose a catheter with, 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 with a larger diameter. So, at least 11 is really small. I, I kind of want to take this out, but it's in the literature, 11 to 14 uh, French. Um, Our dialysis catheters are are in this upper range, 13 to 14 French, the arrows. Um, And just to to compare, the trialysis catheters that I don't even think we really stop routinely are only 12 French. And that's why part of the reason why they're such a pain and they always alarm. It's just because the lumen is so much smaller. So your blood flow rates are more likely to be affected and your alarms are going to go off with a smaller lumen catheter. Um, the catheter sites that we uh, like to cannulate are, the, the right IJ is the most preferable, um, and those are typically 15 centimeters. Left IJ is 15 centimeters, unless it's a small person, it can be, you know, as low as 15. Um, and your femoral vein catheters are anywhere from 20 to 25 centimeters. Again, we typically like the right IJ versus the femoral versus the left IJ, and that's just because of the turning and stuff, you can, you can tend to get more compromised to your, your flow. Um, uh, and then the subclavian, we almost never want to do because cannulating those central veins will cause, you know, an injury at the site of the, at the, at the vein, because you're putting in a large bore. And then, then if that patient needs long-term dialysis, you can get stenosis in the area. Anytime you put in a large bore axis into any vein, uh, you can get a little bit of fibrosis and then which can cause stenosis. So we try to stay away from, from subclavians, um, sorry. So just to look at the tip of the catheter. So um, you'll see that there are two holes that are offset. So the arterial outflow hole, so this is where the blood is going to get pulled from the patient and go to the machine, is more proximal uh, than the more more distal uh, venous inflow. And that's on purpose, right? Because we're going to pull blood more proximally and return it more distally. We don't want to pull blood from the more distal port if we're returning it more proximally, because you can see that we'll start to recirculate and we'll just end up sending the same amount of blood that we cleaned back to the machine to get cleaned, and you're going to diminish your clearance. It's called recirculation. Um, and just another pearl, if you're having access pressure alarms, which I'll talk about a little bit later, um, you want one of the first things you want to do is check your HD catheter position. You want it to be in the ideal position, and that is um, at the, you, with a tip in the cavo-atrial junction. If it's a little bit higher up in the ivc you can see how you're going to get um, you're just not going to have access to the larger diameter that is at the cava avial junction and you're going to have more of a, a tendency to recirculate just because the lumen is narrower and you're going to have more turbulence around the flow um, so again uh, just to kind of again show you what uh um, recirculation is, and uh, when your nurse uh, tells you that, you know, they couldn't really get good flows um, out of the access port, it was alarming, so they had to reverse the lines. What that means, just so you're aware. So again, blood leaves uh, the patient through the more proximal port, goes to the dialysis machine, and then the blood gets cleaned and returned to the patient more distally. Even with this, there's always an obligate amount of recirculation, just because they are still in close proximity. Um, it's really an unavoidable phenomenon. And it will decrease your clearance by about 10% usually um, at baseline. Now, if your lines are reversed, and often what will happen is, you know, this is a negative pressure, right, because they're pulling blood out of the patient. So if you're high up in your, your SVC, it's easy for uh, the, the suction force of the removal of the blood to kind of make this stick up against uh, the vascular wall, and you'll have your access pressures will alarm because there's too much pressure, negative pressure. So often to to, to alleviate that, if you flip it, you're kind of moving this away from the wall. um, And then you can continue with dialysis. But now you are uh, drawing blood from the more distal port, returning it here. And that will definitely increase your recirculation. And reversing the lines will increase your circulation to 20 to 30%. So you will lose clearance. So It's important to know. Now, what about CRRT within an ECMO circuit? So just to illustrate an ECMO circuit. So here's your patient. Here's negative pressure that's being generated by your centrifugal pump, which is pulling a large amount of blood. So on average, I'll just say five liters per minute. Um, and this is negative pressure, right? You're pulling blood from your patient. After this side of the centrifugal pump, it's positive. You're pushing blood from the, from the centrifugal pump through the oxygenator and back to the patient. You can hook up your dialysis access anywhere. You can hook it up here. You can hook it up in between the pump and the oxygenator. You can hook it up after the oxygenator uh, to return to the patient. You can splice in a connector at any of these sites to to hook up, um, you know, either your access or your venous lines. Um, Typically, what's done um, and what we do at the University of Maryland is we do it um, post uh, pump and pre oxygenator. And in this picture here, they're kind of offset, right? So um, your access line is here and your return line is here. Um, And the reason for doing it in in this location, one, it's positive pressure. If you were to put a port uh, in uh, the negative pressure side, if this was to fall off, there's so much negative pressure with such high blood flow, you can entrain a lot of air, and that can be very dangerous to the patient. Yes, the oxygenator can be kind of thought of as like a bubble trap. There are no other bubble traps on an ECMO circuit. But still, at such high negative pressure and such high blood flows, it can be very dangerous. So we try not to hook up anything uh, to the negative pressure line if we, if we uh, can avoid it. Of course, something like a hemoconcentrator, there's no other option. Um, but we would prefer to keep it in the positive arm because if it falls off its positive pressure, you will just leak blood out. You won't entrain air. And then the disadvantage of putting it post-oxygenator is there's really nothing to stop anything that is going to come returning from the dialysis machine to the patient. It's a little bit less of a concern, um, but having the oxygenator right here will stop any extra air or anything, kind of another fail-safe before it gets to the patient. So, You saw that the access and return lines were offset on that picture. How we hook them up at the University of Maryland is we put them kind of perpendicular. um, There's just one connector port, um, and we have, uh, you know, our arterial and return lines, you know, uh, perpendicular to each other. Some people have questioned whether or not that will cause recirculation, but if you think about the difference, the blood flows that you're pulling on CRRT are, what, 200 to 300 cc's per minute, The blood flow through here is like five liters per minute. So it's just flowing so fast that recirculation is really not an issue. And we're kind of doing some clearance clearance studies to to, to prove that. But the advantage is this just has one connector. One With each connector, there's a little bit of a nidus for clot. Um, So I think it really is the best. It's positive pressure on both sides um, and with just one connector. And it works really well. Um, So the next thing you're going to have to pick is what CRT modality are you going to choose? So your options, CVVH, CVVHDF, CVVHD, and SCUF. And so which one should you choose? Um, again, there are no studies that show a difference in survival amongst the continuance modalities, which will offer clearance, so CVVH, CVVHD and CVVHDF. Kind of mentioned all of this al- already. CVVH is a better, better uh, for clearance of middle molecules, um, however, you do have a short, shorter filter half-life, and you can get more clotting, and that's just because as you take off plasma water uh, across the filter, you're hemoconcentrating by the time you get to the end of the filter, um, and so that, uh, that allows for more fibr- fibrin build-up and more propensity to clot. Um, so your filter half-life tends to be a little bit worse with CBBH, especially if you're using mostly post-fil- uh, post-filter replacement. The advantage of CVVHD is you're going to get less clotting and a longer filter half-life, but you're not going to get that middle, same amount of middle molecule clearance. Um, and CVVHDF, especially if you use pre-filter replacement, can, can um, one, give you middle molecule clearance and also improve uh, filter half-life compared to just CVVH alone. Um, so this is a nice modality for uh, protecting against clotting if you use all of the replacement fluid pre-filter. And I'll kind of detail this a little bit more. And then scuff. well, you're not going to choose scuff if you want clearance. You're just going to use scuff if you don't want clearance. Um, you just want uh, fluid removal. Um, and what's nice about scuff is because, uh, you know, you do lose a little bit of solute by solvent drag, but you can still follow the labs if you're assess- assessing for renal recovery um, and any trends in your BMPs. You're not going to be affecting them by, by with the, the clearance. So the next thing we have to choose is our filter. Um, you know, we have two main filters that we pick for – pick from from adults at the University of Maryland, um, which I'll talk about. So filters are uh, characterized by their composition, their biocompatibility, their pore size, their surface area, and their flux. Um, you know, and the spec sheets should all detail um, each of these components, and they're all very important to, to kind of defining exactly your treat, what you're, how you're treating your patient. All of the filters that we use nowadays are biocompatible synthetic membranes, polyacronyl nitrile, polysulfine, uh, polyamide. Um, and these are uh, the most often used because the older cellulose membranes, which really aren't, we don't use anymore, um, uh, will, have, uh, will have increased complement activ- activation and, and they're less biocompatible. So the two membranes that we use are the HF1400 and the M150. So these, these numbers here, the 1.4 meters squared and 1.5 meters squared, are the surface area. You'll see that they're very similar. If anything, the M150 has a slightly larger surface area. What differs is, uh, you know, the, the biosynthetic uh, compound that they're made of. So HF1400 is polyaryl ether sulfone, um, whereas M150 um, is your, your your classic AN69, your acrylo, acrylonitrile and sodium methyl sulfonate copolymer uh, membrane. Um, but essentially, they're very, very similar. Uh, there's no not a specific reason to pick one over the other. The M150s tend to be a little bit stickier and may give you a little bit more adsorption. And so the next thing is uh, what is the flux of your filter? We, the high-flux fl- filters are usually the ones that are always picked and chosen and commercially used uh, these days. And these allow a flux or movement of molecules uh, up into that n- middle molecule range, so 30 to 50 ki- uh, Um And that's the reason why we, we can remove um, some inflammatory mediators because they're in this middle molecule range, um, especially with CVVH, where you're kind of pulling them. Uh, across these larger pores. Now, um, there are some high cutoff membranes available, which I had mentioned that had been studies which allow uh, molecules up to 60 kilodaltons uh, to be cleared, which will theoretically allow higher flux of even middle molecules just because there's some extra larger pores that can allow clearance in addition uh, to the pores that will uh, kind of cut off at 30 to 40 kilodaltons. Um, But these aren't typically used. Um, This is just a a blown-up picture of one of those hollow uh, dialysis uh, membrane uh, filters look like a little red blood cell in the middle, and you'll see that it's just it's just the tube is itself this porous material, uh, which has different holes in it, which allows different uh, molecules to pass through. So the next thing you have to pick is your blood flow rate. A typical blood flow rate on CRRT is 100, which is almost never used blood flows that low, uh, up to 350. The next stage allows for 400. You you can technically do 400. usual blood flow is around just standard to keep at like 250 cc's per minute. And so just to talk a little bit about blood flow, sometimes it's abbreviated QB. Um, Again, the the, the rate range is here. Typical is 200 to 250 cc's per minute. Now, what happens if we increase the blood flow rate? Are we going to get more clearance? You tend to not really improve your clearance, especially if you're using a modality like CVVHD or CVVH where only post-filter is, is removed. Now, that's not true with intermittent he- hemodialysis where increasing your blood flow will improve your clearance. The reason that it does not improve your clearance, if we'll talk about dialysis for now, is that uh, the continuous modalities, the clearance efficiency is so low that you are – equilibrating um, along the membrane, uh, you're, you're, you're equalizing your diffusion gradient. So your dialysate solution is going to be completely equilibrated with your blood because it moves so slowly across um, the membrane. So it doesn't matter if you run your blood through the dialysate at 200 cc's per minute versus 300 cc's per minute, the dialysate is going to be as saturated as it's going to be um, just because it's moving so slowly. So you don't really get any extra clearance if you increase your blood flow rate. Um, With the exception of when we're talking about CVVH with pre-filter replacement, here increased blood flow rates will improve clearance of solutes because it's kind of increasing uh, the proportion of blood that's going into the filter relative to what's being diluted by your pre-filter replacement. So technically there you can get a little bit of improved clearance. However, what higher blood flow rates will will do for you is they can reduce clotting. Um, in the short term. So, you know, faster blood flow, less stasis, less less acute clots forming. However, if you're flowing more blood over time, you're gonna be exposing more fibrin to the filter. So over time, you might shorten your filter half-life, but you will decrease your risk for acute clotting events. Um, and just to put into perspective CRRT with, CV, with, with IHD, with a catheter, the blood flow rates are kind of almost identical. Uh, so with IHD, we typically don't use higher blood flow rates of more than 350 cc's per minute, which is kind of within the range of what we would do with CRRT. So in that regard, they're they're identical. Where they do differ is in the the, the dialysate flow rate, which I'll talk a little bit about. So what is this pre blood pump? Very standard for us to just pick 100 cc's per hour here. However, we can really change that and, and give either nothing through the pre blood pump. Um, or up to <laughs> eight liters through the pre-blood pump, um, but just culturally we do 100 cc's per hour. Um, I'll tell you that the Prisma has a pre-blood pump, but the other very common co- commercially used machine, Nextage, doesn't even have a pre-blood pump. So it is really not an essential component. Um, what it is is it has a theoretical benefit. Um, it's also a nice port to put things in like uh, uh, anticoagulants, or if you want to increase the bicarb concentration in your bath, you put some sodium bicarbonate in here. Typically, we'll just use normal saline or, pl- or, or plasmolite as our pre-blood pump uh, solution. So what it does is it'll, it'll pull your solution, your normal saline, and it will there's a, 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 um, a pump on the filter that will pull it, and it will, it will bring it to the, the blood circuit pretty close to where it comes from the patient. And so it allows, allows this mixing over this long length until it gets to the filter of this normal saline or whatever we choose for our fluid with the blood. The theoretical reason is that you're now mixing some extra fluid um, and you're allowing any urea within the red blood cell to kind of move down a concentration gradient into that normal saline mix in your, in your blood now. So you get better urea clearance. Um, You know, again, it's really theoretical and a not essential component. Um, And just another thing to know is that that your pre-blood pump rate, that volume over time, the machine knows to automatically take it out. So you don't have to worry that you're giving your patient that volume and that they're going to become volume overloaded. The machine will automatically um, ultrafiltrate that volume off. And this is just where the pre-blood pump is. Again, the the fluid will get pulled, driven by this pump, and then sent up here to mix in the bloodline um, close to where the access is. So the next thing you have to pick is you have to give your dose of dialysis. How much clearance are you going to get? And that's decided upon by your replacement um, uh, rate or your dialysate fluid rate. Um, And I'll tell you, standard is uh, to dose it by weight, so 20 cc's per kg per hour. And just with our typical patient population, that usually comes out to 2 to 4 liters per hour. Now, in certain situations where you need really, really fast clearance, Um, uh, you can can do it higher. But for just standard clearance, that that is how we dose it. Again, the effluent dose is recommended in the literature, 20 to 25 cc per kg per hour. And what is the effluent dose? Well, it's the the flow of your effluent is equal to – you have to add up all the components. Your dialysate flow, if you're using diffusive clearance, your replacement flow. Uh, plus whatever your uh, hemofiltering that you aren't replacing, so your ultrafiltration flow um, and whatever that volume is in your pre-blood pump. Now, you can also aim for higher, which many people often do. They'll do 25 to 30 cc's per kg just because we interrupt our patients' CRT therapies all the time for studies and for clotting. Um, so just to make sure that they're delivering that, that minimal dose, people will start off at 25 to 30 cc's per kg per hour. And, again, the typical prescription is t- 2 to 4 liters per hour. Now, this is where CRT really differs from or C- um, uh, continuous modalities really differ from the intermittent uh, dial- uh, hemodialysis. Just to compare diffusion to diffusion, so CVVHD, you know your typical dialysate rate will be the same as your typical uh, convective clearance like two to four liters per hour. So let's say you have a patient who, with weight-based, their, their standard prescription is two liters per hour. So that's how much clearance you're getting. You're getting two liters per hour um, of you know uh, dialysate flow, which is going to dictate your clearance. On intermittent hemodialysis, our dialysate flow rates will be 600 cc's per minute. So if you do the math. That's like 36 liters per hour. So, you know, you're using catheters with both modalities. The blood flow is the same, but in the CVVHD modality, you're clearing the dialysate rate of 2 liters per hour versus 36 liters per hour. So it's just really unmatched. You will never, ever, ever equilibrate. Uh, your diffusion uh, gradient with a dialysis session, which is why the diffusion uh, gradient remains maximal and and the the clearance is incredibly high compared to CVVHD. And so what's the evidence for this 20 to 25 cc's per minute? A lot of earlier studies were done um, looking at this, uh, but what really kind of solidified it were these two uh, randomized controlled trials uh, that came out – Oops, sorry about that – came out a few years ago, the VA NIH ATN study and the renal study um, looked at uh, higher doses of uh, clearance uh, compared to lower doses. So in the ATN study, um, there was over a thousand patients uh, that they were randomized to a CVV HDF at a dose of uh, that's higher than, than typical, 35 cc's per kg per hour. They also did an intermittent arm. So they got intermittent hemodialysis more than we would ever do. Standard is three times per week. And in this arm, I got six uh, treatments per week versus typical. So CVVHDF with a dose of 25 cc's per kg per hour, your standard uh, three doses per week. Um and the renal study looked at similar – it was a similar kind of study, which looked at uh, CVVHDF at a, at a dose a little bit higher than the ATN study um, at 40 cc per kg per hour ver- versus the, the more standard dose of CVVHDF at 25 cc's per kg per hour. And both of these studies uh, failed to detect uh, reduction uh, in mortality uh, with more intensive renal replacement therapy, so it kind of uh, helped us stick to what we, we are, are currently doing. So now you're going to – now that you've – let's say you've chosen uh, – if, if, if you've chosen CVVHD, you don't have to break it up. It all goes in one port. If you've chosen CVVH, um, you're going to have to decide where you're going to give your replacement fluid, wh- where you're going to put it back in the blood. Are you going to put it pre-filter or post-filter? Um, and, and usually it's a combination. So common combinations are 70-30, 50-50, um, and some, some people will do 100-0. I sometimes do this, um, and I'll explain why. Um, and so, where does this go exactly? This is—it's it's not the greatest quality picture, but just to show you exactly how the replacement fluid is entering the blood. So these lines are coded. If it's replacement fluid, it's going to be a line with a, with a blood line with a or tubing with a purple line. So pre pre-filter replacement. Um, so here the blood here's the blood pump. The the blood flows in here and goes into the filter here. Pre-fluid replacement will enter the blood here. So blown up here. This is your replacement fluid, enter the blood here, and then it will all go into the filter. So that's where pre-filter replacement fluid goes on your machine. Post-filter replacement, um, again, if it's replacement fluid, it's going to be in a purple line. So the the portion that you choose, the replacement fluid will flow in here, and it will kind of get dripped on top of uh, the blood here post-filter. Um, Some people say that you would want to use a little bit of it so you don't have any air interface with the blood. It's really not essential, um, but most people will use a little bit of um, post-filter. It it enters the blood uh, post-filter in that area. And so why choose pre-filter versus versus post-filter? What's the advantage and disadvantage of each? So your pre-filter replacement is going to help you with with, uh, clotting. Um, It's going to dilute clotting factors because you're giving your replacement fluid before the blood goes through the filter, so the blood is diluted by it. Um, uh, and it's going to prolong the filter half-life because of that. Now, you will get a decrease in small molecule clearance because you just diluted the concentration of the small molecules that you want to clear by giving it pre-filter. Um, however, you can kind of get around this. You can increase your blood flow rate um, uh, if you're doing CVVH or your replacement fluid rate to overcome the, t- the typical 15 to 20% reduction in small molecule clearance that you'll get with pre-filter uh, replacement fluid. However, there is a gain theoretically and in some studies in middle molecule clearance when you use pre-filter replacement. And the reason for that is, is that you know your middle molecules are, are kind of big and they're getting pushed up to the, 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 the filter. Um, and as you hemoconcentrate along the, along the, the filter, um, you're going to start to create the secondary membrane effect Uh, proteins that would never be able to make it through will now be hemoconcentrated and will impede some of that middle molecule flux across the membrane, um, which is relieved a little bit if you dilute out those larger molecules with a pre-filter replacement rate. Um, And again, along this vein, uh, pre-filter replacement will reduce uh, the solute uh, membrane interactions um, and can enhance mass transfer just because you're diluting out the blood before you pass it along the filter. Now quickly, post-filter replacement, so there are fewer reductions in clearance uh, because you're not diluting out the blood. You're putting the highest concentration of the bad solute that you want to clear to the filter because you're not using pre-filter replacement. Um, it'll be a shorter half-life because as the blood goes across the membrane and you're removing plasma water and solute, you're hemoconcentrating what's left. So you have a propensity to clot, especially towards the end of the filter. Um, uh, again, you limits your ultrafiltration ability, though you shouldn't be ultrafiltrating that much anyway that you're going to really raise your filtration fraction, which I'll talk about, um, just because uh, of hemoconcentration of the blood. Um, and with a larger percentage of post-filter um, replacement fluid, you'll be much more likely to be looking into your anticoagulant options just because of this clotting, increased clotting risk. This is just a CVVHD circuit because I didn't really talk about it. So it looks exactly the that You won't even know unless you really look at the machine and what bags of fluid are flowing. So the blood comes from your patient, goes into the filter in the same way, um, and you have a separate dialysis pump that will pull your dialysate. We call it dialysate now, though it's probably your same, your same ba- bag of prismosate. Um, And again, it doesn't go directly into the blood. It goes into a port here that will bathe the outside of these little tiny hollow fiber filters, which is carrying the blood. Um, And it will go opposite in direction to the blood flow. And then everything will drain out of the effluent pump here. And this line is colored yellow because we're nephrologists and it's like urine. And so I think it fits pretty well. Um, So, now now that you've decided that you want, you know, 70, 30, 50, 50, 100, zero, um, you now have to pick which type of uh, fluid bag that you want. And we use commercially available ones. Very few institutions will compound their own renal replacement therapy fluid. Um, So, they're all commercially chosen. And so, Prismasate is a very common one. Um, The arrows here indicate the ones that we have on formulary at Maryland. Um, So I'm going to go through this quickly, but what does BGK mean? It means bicarb, glucose, uh, potassium. And so these are all the the compositions. A couple of things to notice, standard bicarb is 32 milliequivalents per liter. There's also lactate in this. Uh, So uh, lactate uh, is actually part because it's bicarbonate equivalent. So um, that's just something to know. And osmolarity is maintained. I'm going to go through the rest of this quickly because I think I'm running out of time, Uh, but uh, ultrafiltration rate, uh, you know, we choose this separately on our machines can go anywhere from zero to uh, two liters per hour, I mean, two two ML, sorry, two, yeah, two liters per hour, which you should never do because that will definitely exceed your plasma refill rate and you could risk uh, hypotension and and worsening renal function. um, If you do this and this is the effluent pump that pulls Uh, the uh, ultrafiltrate out and sends it to the effluent bag. And here on the machine is just showing you, you can tell right away what your effluent removal rate is out because it's indicated right here. So filtration fraction I'll just talk about very quickly, um, and I might have to stop uh, just for time because I know we have some interviews. Um, So filtration fraction is the ratio of your effluent flow, so what's coming out on the other side of the filter to the total blood flow entering the filter. So it's defined as um, your effluent flow, which is a total of your replacement fluid rate, the net ultrafiltration rate, and whatever you're putting in through your blood pump um, over your plasma flow. And so the QP here um, is equal to your blood flow rate. And you have to adjust this for your hematocrit um, because this is going to tell you how much of your blood is, is red blood cells essentially versus plasma water. Um, plus your pre-filter, because uh, remember, pre-filter will dilute your blood. Um, and it will decrease your p- filtration fraction. So you, we, we factor this in here, um, and the the, the, pl- the pre-blood pump fluid also goes in pre-filter, so that will, will reduce it and will be factored in depth down here as well. And so this ratio, you want to be less than 25% uh, to reduce your clotting risk. You can calculate it. The machine will calculate it for you, but just know that you have to enter the hematocrit, the accurate, accurate hematocrit daily. So unless your nurse is doing that, it might not be accurate. Um I probably might have to stop here.